0: Um, my name is Corey Schumacher. I'm one of the crew staff, and um, over the past couple of weeks, I've been taking us through a little talk series. Here we go, a, a little talk series called Encounters with Jesus, and we've been reading in the Gospel of John and uh, looking at these encounters that people have with Jesus, and we see in these encounters unexpected answers to life's biggest questions, questions like. What are we here for? You know, what's the world for? What's our purpose? Questions like, what went wrong with the world? What, what's, what's the problem with our, our world? What, if anything, can make it right? And what's our part in that? And so um, we've been learning as we've been going through this series that God actually did create the world for a purpose. He created human beings to live in a paradise of love and intimacy with him. Where we would glorify God. And uh, we also learned that uh, we screwed all of that up um, by rebelling against God, trusting on ourselves, and going our own way. And by trusting on ourselves, we, in, we actually brought sin into this world and brokenness. And that's what's wrong with this world. And as a result of that, God brought his curse and his judgment, and now everything is broken. Our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with each other is broken. Our relationship with the world and with ourselves is broken. And so, the natural question for us tonight is, um, is there any hope in light of how messed up this world is? Is there anything that can make the world better again? Is there any ultimate solution? Um... And so actually what I want to do is um, to get you engaged in this question, I want to have you just turn to some people next to you, maybe groups of two or three, and I want you to um, kick around this question for a little bit. Is there any ultimate hope for the world? Uh, Where do people in our society turn for answers to this question? Just take a minute, maybe two at the most, and I'll bring us back together and move us forward. All right. Go ahead and bring it back in. Um, you know, by, by now, as you probably are fully aware, that there are no shortages of people who claim to have an answer to this question. Um, as a matter of fact, political leaders, political candidates, will build their entire uh, campaign on a slogan that that promises a better future for the society, the world we live in. Uh, if you um, Remember back in 2008, Barack Obama uh, built his campaign on the slogan about change, right? That he was going to bring change to the world, change we can believe in, change we can get behind. Uh, and then, of course, um, if you forgot about that, we certainly have not yet forgot about Donald Trump's campaign in 2016 uh, with the, the, the catchy slogan to make America great again, right? There's this vision that he has of, I, I, I'm going to bring this country to greatness, Um, and of course, you know, nowadays in our society, people have a lot of cynicism uh, about political leaders, about politics, but we turn to all kinds of other sources for hope in this world. We, We look for answers in quality education, greater technological innovations. We look to better healthcare, stable economies, and even things like social justice. But isn't it true that none of these solutions, as helpful as they may be, has actually ever solved our fundamental problem, right? I mean, we've been trying to fix the world's problems for millennia, and yet here we are thousands of years later, later still in this mess. And what ends up happening is, you know, we, we, might, we might temporarily solve or at least minimize problems, make them disappear for a while, but what ends up happening is that they always reappear or something else takes its place, Right? Uh, it's like we're, we're playing this game, this cosmic game of whack-a-mole. You guys ever play that carnival game, whack-a-mole? You know, you're slamming with a mallet these little moles that, that pop up, and you just keep beating them down, beating them down. But inevitably, once you get one, a new one comes up. You know, we may, we may put out a forest fire in one location, but another one reemerges. Right? We, we, we may cure one disease, but another one evolves we, we may eliminate one global terrorist organization, but there's always a new one to take its place. And that's because underneath the surface, the fundamental problem remains. It's like trying, trying to get rid of a computer virus, a piece of malware, by cleaning off the screen, right? Or, or curing cancer with a bottle of Tylenol. Sin and brokenness, the fundamental problem in our world, cannot, will never be solved by any of mankind's developments. And that's it. So it's just kind of a hopeless situation, right? And so that's really the point of tonight's talk, right? Is there any hope? Is there hope for this world? What, if any, anything, can make the world right and deal finally with our underlying problem? Well, just like last week, we learned what was wrong with the world through the stories of Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Tonight, we're going to read the story of how two sisters who are grieving the loss of their brother discover for themselves what it is, or better yet, who it is, that can make the world right. And since all these encounters that we've been looking at are um, all with Jesus, it should not be a surprise that Christians believe that, that the answer to the world's deepest problem is found in Jesus himself. But what I, what I want you to do tonight, I want to invite you to, as we read this story, to actually put yourself in the shoes of these two sisters, Mary and Martha, and try to imagine just afresh um, what it would be like to be in their situation. These people do not know fully who Jesus is yet and what he came to do. And so try to just imagine how surprising and stunning this encounter would be if you were there. And the story begins in John chapter 11, which you can turn there if you have a Bible. And it begins when their brother, Lazarus, gets sick. And we learn that Lazarus was someone Jesus loved uh, quite dearly, in fact, um, as well as his siblings. It was like they were a tight family almost. Uh, Jesus had an affectionate relationship with all of them. And so things take a turn for the worse with Lazarus' health, and he's on the verge of dying. And so the sisters call for Jesus to come. And um, As it turns out, Jesus delays for a couple of days, and um, when he finally makes his way to Bethany, where they are, uh, by the time he arrives, he finds out that Lazarus has already died, And and they placed him in the tomb. But what happens next in the story, this is not only one of the most famous events in all of human history, but this reveals who Jesus Christ really is and what he came to do on this earth. Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. So there's a lot going on in this passage, but what I want to do is focus on Jesus' response to these two women and their question. First, notice that Martha, she approaches Jesus, she leaves and she says, "Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died." And then shortly after that, Mary, her sister, says the exact same thing to Jesus. And shortly after, or word for word. And so what we have in this story is two sisters in the exact same situation who say the exact same words to Jesus. Yet, what's so interesting about this story is that Jesus treats them both very differently. And there's a reason for this. You see, Martha's approach to Jesus is one of frustration, disappointment. Notice that she actually leaves the house when she gets word that he's on his way in. And she's like on a mission to meet him. And when she finally gets to him, she speaks to Jesus, and it's like the subtext of her words. Her, mes- her message to Jesus is, is like this Jesus, you're too late. You should have gotten here sooner. It's all your fault. It's as if her heart is filled with despair and doubt. And Jesus' response to her is almost confrontational, right? It's like he, he says to her, Listen, I am the resurrection and the life. He's giving her a dose of truth. You know, he says, and so it's as if he's pushing back, right, against all of her doubt and trying to give her some hope. But then there's Mary. And unlike Martha, Jesus needed to draw Mary out of the house, right? She was in a different emotional state, a little bit of a different place. But when she gets to Jesus, she says the exact same thing. And when she does, something totally different happens. Jesus doesn't argue with Mary. In fact, he's basically speechless. And instead of pushing against Mary's sadness, he enters into it. So much so that the shortest verse in all of the Bible says that Jesus wept. And as he's bursting into tears, all he can say to Mary is to ask, where is he? Where have they laid him? So, the question is, why are these responses so different? Why is Jesus so strong with Mary, but yet so vulnerable, I'm sorry, so strong with Martha, but so vulnerable with Mary? I believe believe the reason for this is because we actually learn something profound about Jesus' true identity. In these dual encounters, Jesus is revealing something that the Bible elsewhere repeatedly affirms. You see, the Bible consistently teaches that Jesus is actually both fully God on the one hand, but but fully human on the other. Sometimes we call Jesus the God-man. And so when he's with Martha, what he says to her is he claims this bold claim, right? I'm the resurrection and the life. What he says is, I am what brings everything into life. Every heartbeat, every brainwave, every biological organism is under my control. I created life, I sustain life, and I can even bring life from the dead. I mean, this is a claim. This is a claim that only the God of the universe could ever make, right? And this is exactly what Martha needs to hear in this moment. In her world of grief and anger and frustration, she needs to be confronted with the bold truth that Jesus is not a mere man, but he's actually the God of all life, and he can raise the dead. But yet, this is not the complete picture that we get of him, because then there's Mary. With Mary, Jesus gives us a different picture. Jesus does not offer Mary these bold claims to deity, he does not offer this theology. What he gives Mary is his tears. He breaks down, sobbing, under the weight of her grief. Why? Why would he do that? Why, if Jesus is so strong, if he's God, why does he weep? And the reason he weeps is be- and the reason he shares in our grief is because Jesus is fully human. When he walked the earth, Jesus actually experienced the full spectrum of human emotion that we all experience. Because Jesus is one of us. He is a full human being in every sense of the word. And this is something that we need to understand. And so in this moment with Mary, he feels the full weight and the full agony, the full anguish of losing a loved one. Something probably most of us in this room can relate with. It's been said that Jesus here gives Martha the ministry of truth, but he gives Mary the ministry of tears. And actually, in our life, we all need both. We all need need both. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he's always strong when we need him to be strong. And he's always tender when we need him to be tender. And he always knows exactly what we need and can give us the perfect dose of both. I love this about Jesus. But this raises the question, why would he do this? Why would Jesus leave the glory of heaven to enter this world of misery and death? Well, the story picks up in verse 38 and tells us the answer. Jesus, once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. "'Take away the stone,' he said. "'But Lord,' said Martha, The sister of the dead man, by this time there there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Okay, what's so interesting about this passage is it says Jesus was deeply moved. But actually, in the original languages, the language is far more strong, way more forceful. In fact, the word there is sometimes used in the ancient Greek literature to refer to a uh, horse's snorting. And what people have said is that actually this would be better translated as, as Jesus bellows with anger. He's not just moved. He's outraged. He's incensed. Jesus is mad. He's furious. But, but why? I mean, think... Who could he be mad at? There's no indication in this story that he's angry with the sisters or the family. So what is it? Well, in his famous poem, the late Dylan Thomas wrote these words. He said, do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. You see, Jesus is raging against death. You see, Jesus is not one of the stoic philosophers of his day that resigns himself to the world as it is. He doesn't say we should just all embrace death as a normal part of life. No, death is not a part of God's design for his creation. Death is an unwelcome intruder. Death is a result of our sin and rebellion against God. And Jesus stands squarely at the tomb looking our greatest enemy face to face, and he's mad. But then, he does what nobody expects, the unexpected. He calls out to Lazarus. He says, Lazarus, come out. Now, just for a moment, just think about the absurdity of this for a minute. You know, if you've been to a funeral, I was just at one last month, and I just think about how insensitive that would be I mean, you're in a funeral, and someone that you love is in a casket, and you have the audacity. Someone has the audacity to call out and to say, Lazarus, come out. Not only would that be incredibly audacious, but how, how inappropriate, right? You're interrupting a, a funeral. You're making a scene that's not about you. Yet this is what Jesus does, and then the most astonishing thing happens, Lazarus walks out of the tomb. His dead corpse comes to life. So it's one thing to say, I am the resurrection and the life. It's another thing to prove it. And people are astonished. So let's go back to the original question. Why did he do it? Why did Jesus do this? Why did he need to become a man in the first place to fix the world's problems? I mean, after all, if Jesus, as we see here, can raise the dead with his voice... Why did he need to go through all this trouble to walk the earth for thirty-three years? Why did he go through all of this pain when he could, couldn't? He just wipe all of this evil out with the snap of a finger, you know? Why? Why does he go through all of this? And here's the surprising answer: that we have, we have to remember that that evil and sin and wickedness in this world is not merely an abstract concept. It's not this philosophical idea that we can just get rid of, because remember evil and sin exists in our very hearts. So if Jesus were just to wipe it off and destroy it, he would actually have to destroy you and I. We would be the object of God's wrath if he were to just give up on this planet and destroy it all. But friends, God loves the world. He loves his creation. Because he loves this world, he sends Jesus on a rescue mission, not to destroy, but to redeem it. Author Tim Keller says it really well. He says, Jesus did not come with a sword in his hands, but with nails in his hands. He did not come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. Jesus knew that the only way to bring Lazarus out of the grave was to put himself into the grave. He knew the only way to interpret Lazarus' funeral, to interrupt Lazarus' funeral, was to summon his own. If he was going to save us from death, he was going to have to go to the cross and bear the judgment we deserve. The witnesses said about Jesus, see how he loved Lazarus, but really, we must behold how he loves us. He became mortal, vulnerable, killable, all out of love for us. You see, when Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he was not just a victim of injustice by the religious establishment, but he was intentionally laying his life down as a sacrifice for a greater purpose. And that purpose was to actually bear the full weight of God's judgment on the world for our sin and rebellion. He was becoming a curse for us so that the curse of this world, the curse that sort of immerse, is immersed throughout every part of creation, including our hearts, could be lifted and removed. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul, the apostle Paul puts it like this. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And what's more is that because Jesus payment for sin was accepted by God the grave could not hold him. And on the third day Jesus actually rose from the dead. And then he's he's also been not only raised from the dead but he has ascended into heaven and he's at the father's right hand. And he's gloriously victorious over all of our greatest enemies, over Satan, over sin, over death itself. Jesus has triumphed through not only his death, but his resurrection. All these enemies have been defeated. And by his resurrection, Jesus has now ushered in a new era. This is really important. Jesus has ushered in the beginning of a new era where now Light has dawned into this dark, broken world where hope emerges in the midst of the despair. Human sin and rebellion can now be completely forgiven. Eternal life is freely offered in the name of Jesus. And the light of God's glory is dawning and spreading all throughout the earth. And what's crazy is that we learn that even the earth itself now has hope. The Apostle Paul says again in Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, he says, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So you see, All creation, everything now has hope because of Jesus. In the classic story, um, The Lord of the Rings, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's character, Samwise Ganji, says to Gandalf the Great, just after he wakes up from his rescue from Mount Doom, he utters one of the most famous and powerful lines of all English literature. You may remember this line. He says, Does this mean everything sad will come untrue? And this is really the question we've been asking tonight Is there anything that can make the sadness of this world come untrue? In the final chapters of the Bible, Jesus gives an answer to Samwise Gamgee's question, and he gives a resounding yes. He says in the very last chapters, He says, Behold, I am making all things new. Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus is undoing the curse that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. All the brokenness of this world will one day fully be redeemed. And one day, all those who have hoped in Jesus will forever be a part of this new creation. A creation that's even better than the paradise of Eden. Where every tear will be wiped away. All suffering, all death, will be no more. And everything sad will come untrue. So tonight... As you think about your own experience with sin and brokenness, perhaps perhaps there's some pain in your life that you wish would just go away. Perhaps you're thinking about how messed up your life is and how you just wish things would come untrue, things you've said, things you've done. Perhaps recently you've lost someone close to you. Maybe maybe your parents have gotten a divorce. Or maybe you feel ashamed of a decision that you made last weekend, or the weekend before that, or this summer. Or perhaps maybe even you just feel ashamed at who you are on the inside. Maybe there's things that just feel so hopeless, you feel so stuck. Maybe it's with a relationship with a relative or a friend or a roommate. Or maybe it's an addiction that has crippled you. What Mary and Martha, what Lazarus, what Jesus wanted to say to you tonight, the message of John 11 is that there is hope. There is hope for you. Jesus is making all things new. And because he's making all things new, you you can step out of the darkness of shame and guilt, knowing that Jesus has borne your punishment. You can step out of the the darkness of despair, knowing that Jesus is redeeming and has redeemed everything. Everything. And one day it will be fully redeemed. All that's been lost. And you can step into the arms of a savior who knows exactly how to weep with those who are hurting. And he knows how to strengthen those who are doubting. Because Jesus is our only hope. So what I'd like for you to do is um, to just engage with these questions on the screen and to to find people next to you reflect on this a little bit what as you think about this story there's mary and martha which of these sisters do you resonate with more in other words do you feel like you need a firm reminder that jesus is god or a gentle reminder that he's human and can enter your pain what areas of your life feel hopeless how does this message give you hope you believe Jesus is the answer. So take a few minutes. And I'll pray. I'm going to just go ahead and pull you guys back in. I encourage you to keep talking about this with your friends and as you meet new people here at Crew, just to continue these conversations. Uh, before I pray, I, just, I, I, I want to tell you a little story about in the 1960s. Um, I came across this the other day, and there was a famous story about a, a Russian astronaut who flew out into outer space. And, and when they came back, they said, we, we went to outer space, and behold, there was no God. So we've proved God does not exist. And as illogical as that sounded to many people, mi- millions of people kind of think that way today. But around that same time, C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian writer, uh, wrote an article called The Seeing Eye. And in that article he said that if God does exist, human beings would not relate to God kind of like on the first story um, and a second story of a house. Like God's just on the second story and we need, all we have to do is go up there to meet him. But he said, actually, God created all things. He created the universe, space, time, matter, everything. And because that's true, if, if we were to know who this God is, he, we, would, we would relate to him like Hamlet could relate to Shakespeare. Only if Shakespeare could write himself into the play would, would we have any knowledge, or would he have any knowledge of his author? And the beautiful truth of our message tonight is that, is that Jesus has written himself into our story. He has written himself into this world of brokenness and pain. And he's redeeming it. And so that's our hope for tonight. And I want to pray and close this out. Lord God, thank you so much for this truth. Thank you that you are changing everything. That you raise the dead, that you reverse the curse, that you are the answer to what can make the world right again. Oh, I just pray for those of us here tonight who are struggling to believe that, that we would anchor our hope, not in what the world says, but in what you say. Help us to leave tonight feeling confident and free, knowing that we don't have to bear the brunt of our own guilt. We don't have to pay for our sins. We don't have to redeem this world. We can't. But help us to walk in hope, knowing that you have already done it. You are doing it. And prepare us for next week, Lord, as we figure out how it is that we have a part in this. Oh, we love you, Lord. Thank you that you didn't wipe us out. Thank you for redeeming us. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) you <laughs>